Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is your host, Dan Nexon. When I agreed to host this channel, there were a number of authors I hoped to interview, including Michael Gordon. This might come as a surprise to listeners who know Mike, because he is neither a science fiction nor a fantasy author. He is, rather, a prominent historian of science at Princeton University. But Mike's work intersects with the subject matter of this podcast in a number of ways. An earlier book, Five Days in August, How World War II Became a Nuclear War, asked readers to consider what might have been had Tokyo refused to surrender and the U.S. had continued to drop atomic bombs in Japan. Mike will soon start co-teaching a class on invented languages, which includes a unit on Klingon. The main subject of this interview, the pseudoscience wars, touches on both the history of science fiction, key themes within the genre, and where much of its source material comes from. Indeed, while this channel will continue to focus on new books within the science fiction and fantasy genres, it will also interview scholars and practitioners whose expertise illuminates and enhances our understanding of those genres. I hope this interview does so for its listeners. Hi, this is Dan Nexon, and I'm speaking to Mike Gordon. Mike, are you there? I am here. So, Mike, you were my former college debate partner. Um, <laughs> you actually were my college debate partner, and you are now my former college debate partner. Uh, both true. Uh, and uh, I think we first met when you were in high school, and I was judging debate tournaments, uh, and we both went to college together. I went off to Columbia to do my doctorate, but you stayed at Harvard and got a doctorate in history of science. Is that correct? That's correct. correct. Uh, And have been incredibly prolific since then. So before we start talking about uh, the pseudoscience wars, maybe you could tell us a bit about your other work. Uh, Well, I started out as a historian of imperial Russian chemistry, of which Nothing can sound more dreary. But I uh, started working on the history of the development of the periodic table, which is the bane of people, students in chemistry classes across the world, looking at its creator, Dmitry Mendeleev, in the context of late imperial Russia. And I thought I was just going to keep doing that. But I got uh, blindsided and distracted by the history of nuclear weapons and spent about a decade working first on a book on the uh, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how that fit into the end of war strategy for the United States. And uh, that book is called Five Days in August, uh, focusing on the days in between the Nagasaki attack and surrender when the atomic bomb was beginning to be integrated into a bombing strategy for the war for a longer term. And then the war suddenly ended. And then another book called Red Cloud at Dawn, which emphasizes uh, the flow of nuclear information between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the uh, early days of the Cold War, between 1945 and 1949, when only the United States had the atomic bomb, the period of the atomic monopoly. So Five Days in August is a book that I think will be of some interest. I mean, all these books are extremely interesting, and I've actually read a fair number of them. But um, Five Five Days in August, I think, would be particularly interesting to our audience because it is uh, somewhere between history and science fiction. Um, you know, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about because you basically asked the question: What would have happened had the Japanese not surrendered and the U.S. had continued to use nuclear weapons as part of its integrated bombing campaign? That's correct. There's a lot of uh, speculation surrounding the end of World War II focusing on counterfactuals. What would have happened if we'd only used one bomb? What if the Soviets had not entered the war or had entered the war before the first bomb? What if um, Truman had negotiated more or more explicitly articulated negotiating position with the emperor? What no one had asked explicitly before five days in August is what if the Japanese had not surrendered? What would the war have looked like if it had kept going? And the way that's very hard for a historian to answer, and this is what differentiates us from science fiction authors, is we are constrained by the body of evidence that exists, which means alternative pasts that didn't happen are forever closed. But thinking that way, imagining another alternative past helps us see what tools in the in the actual past, we can use to answer it. And there was a period of time when atomic bombs had been used and Japan had not surrendered. And it's about a week long after Hiroshima on August 6th and surrender on August 14th. And by looking at how the military was trying to build up um, 
First, a continued firebombing strategy, and second, a plan for using atomic bombs in the invasion of Japan. You get a, a vision of an alternative past in which nuclear bombs would be much more normal, in a sense, integrated into our strategy, less world-shattering, world-changing, but just extremely large firebombs that might be used. And l once I, using this, as you put it quite rightly, science fiction reasoning to think my way through this, you can go back and see elements of that normalized atomic bomb much earlier in the war. Well, I mean, in essence, you're arguing that, um, or you argued that uh, nuclear weapons would not have been unconventional weapons of mass destruction. They would have been conventional weapons. They would have been part of the normal arsenal of weaponry, just really big firebombs, for example. Yes. Uh, this is, uh, there, there's something uh, in the preface to Left Hand of Darkness that uh, struck to me, stru struck me that one when one is thinking in a science fiction way about the world, that world's already here around you. You just have to focus on aspects of it that aren't being highlighted. And the narrative of the atomic bomb as being a very big firebomb was present before uh, the end of the war. So was the narrative of the atomic bomb being revolutionary. And by the way the war ended, it closed off one story about the bomb and privileged another. And That's yeah. Anyway, well, go on. <laughs> so, and so, and so, uh, I, I, my goal is not to sort of say that one of the stories was better than the other, but to show how certain stories get lopped off and other stories get uh, reinscribed and made dominant. And that's a process that doesn't happen before surrender. So the argument is, in a sense, that the it's not the specialness of the bomb that ends the war; it's the way the war ends that makes us think the bomb was always special from the beginning. And that's really interesting to me, and I think, I hope, interesting to a lot of people. I, When I used to teach Introduction to International Politics and we would do our week on weapons of mass destruction, I would open with uh, pictures of Dresden and Tokyo after the firebombings. But I wouldn't caption them, and I would ask them – I would ask my students where they thought these scenes were from, and invariably at least half of them thought they were from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and even – then you could go in not just to places where the U.S. Uh, and, and in some cases the British used firebombing, but also just places that had suffered sustained strategic bombing. And it's hard to tell the difference without uh, a, a huge amount of contextual knowledge between the cities that suffered from that and the cities that suffered from nuclear attack. And that's sort of, as I understand it, the argument you're making about yes. the way that those weapon, nuclear weapons could have been seen and indeed were seen for some time by a great many people. Right, and there were there are some features that are obviously different, as in they're radioactive. But uh, people before uh, the bombing on Japan didn't know how radioactive they would be, and that vision of the bomb is producing fallout and generating cancer and leukemia. That's something we learn later, and people also underestimate how much ecological destruction comes from conventional bombing when you have explosions in rat populations, typhus all sorts of other chemical poisonings that happen from that. And there are uh, many features that we have taken to be canonical. That idea of showing people pictures of these firebomb cities and not telling them what they were is uh, really striking. It hadn't occurred to me to do that. Um, but it shows how much of an importation of an idea gets imposed on it. And when shock and awe was formulated as a strategy um, in the recent Gulf War, it's actually framed as trying to do Hiroshima and Nagasaki with conventional weapons. So even the strategy, it's that, that's in the original planning document. So even in uh, the way we use conventional weapons, we nuclearize them in certain ways. These boundaries are a lot fuzzier. Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five does a lot of this messing around with the categories already, since he sets it with the firebombing of Dresden, but there's a lot in it on the uh, atomic bombing on Hirosh of Hiroshima. And so those categories have already been scrambled by many thinkers and novelists and writers. They just haven't been... The scrambling that existed historically hasn't been appropriately recovered yet. You know, I think as I said to you before, I was I read some of the there were some of the reviews of, of Five Days in August were actually rather vitriolic um, yes. in their criticisms, and as somebody coming at this from uh, international relations, I was a little surprised because you know I've 
seen the war planning from the 50s, I, I, you know, it's sort of almost conventional wisdom in my field that there was a shift over time in the way that nuclear weapons were seen by planners. Um, we all know we've seen the the films of testing in which you know soldiers were looking on, unaware of yes. the amount of radiation damage that they would be receiving. So this idea that nuclear weapons were not necessarily sui generis um, in the way that they're often thought about in the popular imagination now was, I thought, fairly well established. And your book was uh, really important in terms of trying to make an argument about when the path to the mean conventional began to be closed down, so about the particular causal history there. Um, but you were reviewed fairly negatively by a fair number of people who said, oh, no, they were always unconventional, and how could anybody say this? What do you attribute that to? Um, there's a lot of investment on uh, many sides in interpreting not so much nuclear weapons as special, but the end of World War II as a transformative moment. So given... There's two basic views about the dropping of the atomic bomb uh, and why it happened. And these are highly nuanced by scholars on both sides. But the larger view and the, the abstract, more schematic views, which uh, some of those reviewers subscribe to, um, have two components. One is the bomb was used to end the war. And those people are invested in the bomb being special because it has this special war-ending capacity that firebombing had not been able to do up until that point. And the other school, which believes that the bomb was used to scare the Soviet Union and initiate the Cold War, which is where most of the vitriolic reviewers came from, think that the bomb also has special properties because it was used in this unique politics-altering kind of way that the rest of the war did not do. And so there is an enormous amount of investment in believing this post-war construction of the bomb and projecting it back. People who work really close to the documents of nuclear strategy, um, actually, a nuclear strategy and nuclear history over time actually didn't write vitriolic reviews. It's people who are slightly more removed, who haven't spent as much time with the documents as you have with the nuclear strategy documents, who have a stronger investment in this transformative special capacity of the bomb. The, it, it, I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying the bomb doesn't have those capacities now. But it was made so. It wasn't born that way. So now we've hit on at least three different valences of uh, this work that take us into the realm of speculative fiction. You've already discussed a bit uh, the parallels between science fiction as a method and counterfactual history as a method. Uh, and that's something that I think has been talked about uh, in the alt-history community and by mm -hmm. some historians who have engaged in alternative history or written about whether or not alternative history is an appropriate methodology. Um, oh, which always struck me as a little weird because by its very nature, when you're doing history, you're making counterfactual claims, so you already have a kind of alternate universe there. But maybe you would, would disagree with that. No, anytime you make a causal claim, you're basically invoking an alternative history. Like, I burned my hand because I spilled coffee on it implies that if I had not spilled the coffee on it, my hand would not be burnt. Whereas my hand could have been burnt for a bunch of other reasons. Someone could have thrown a coal on it, like, but they stopped because they saw the coffee spilling. Um, so you always, in order to say A caused B, you philosophically have to have a counterfactual in mind that implies the other, that it would not have been the case if the circumstances had been otherwise. So why is it that some historians, you know, are on record as being opposed to counterfactual history or alternative history or, or expressly imagining alternative pathways, given that I have yet to read a single work by an historian that does not make causal claims? Um, there are people who try not to make causal claims, and often I try to make causal, try to avoid making explicitly causal claims in some pieces to experiment with how far that can be possible. I, I tend to be opposed to counterfactual history in the writing of it, uh, but not in the thinking of it. And the problem with the writing of it is your evidence base is highly constrained. Uh, so you can't actually write a history of a past that didn't happen. But it's extremely important in order to um, figure out what actually did happen to imagine all the possible worlds that could have happened. And there is no historian who doesn't do that. The question is just whether the method should be deployed in the argumentation or not. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way out of this. The way out of the problem is uh, our past was somebody else's future at one point. And people spend a lot of time imagining alternative futures. 
For example, in the summer of 1945, in July, people imagined lots of possible ways the war might have ended. And only some of those options took place. But by looking at their imagined futures, you see some of the alternative pasts that might have unfolded. And they're actually documented because people are fleshing out their conception. So in a sense, the speculative fiction of the past created by policymakers is uh, a guide to uh, mapping out counterfactual history, alternative history, with some evidence that you can draw on. What's interesting is this brings us into some of the additional dimensions. I now think there are four. It's one of the Spanish Inquisition moments, right? There are three ways, that, ways this intersects with science fiction. No, there are four. No, there are five. But um, which is the way in which um, speculative fiction, uh, which is explicitly speculative fiction as opposed to what you describe as the speculative fiction of policymakers, yes. is a kind of future imaginary, right? Yes. So in the ways in which what people uh, write about when they're trying to write accounts of the future that are plausible to their readers, even if remotely plausible, are engaged in a kind of cultural production of possible futures. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the ways I thought that was interesting in terms of your discussion of nukes is, or, or, or of whether nuclear weapons were conventional or not, is the sheer volume of speculative fiction written in the 50s uh, in, into the 60s that does imagine the use of atomics as a, a fairly yes. normal part of warfare, whether it's warfare in space or warfare on Earth. And I know that that's a literature that interests you to some degree. Yes, yes, uh, quite a bit. There's, um, the, the nuclear fiction subset of speculative fiction comes in a huge variety of forms. There's um, the kinds that imagine how the nuclear war will happen, which is the closest, the, the probably the least speculative of these speculative fictions. But then there's um, just at that very originary moment, besides uh, Dune, which has atomics having a particular place in uh, a taboo, taboo slash taboo that must be broken quality. Um, you also have in Foundation uh, a very. It's not about nuclear weapons, but it's about atomic power as the essential technology of civilization. And the reason the foundation can shorten the period of chaos is because they maintain the technology for nuclear power for longer. And this just persists. I mean, one of the things that, you know, my wife uh, has some, ex you know, does work in the nuclear arena. One of the things that she's fond of pointing out is that in the in Star Wars Episode Four, they're shutting down the reactor on the Death right. Star. Um, but go on about the the fifties and sixties. Oh, the fifties. There's uh, also the the area of, of speculative fiction in this regard that I like that I spend the most time reading about are attempts to imagine what not so much the normality of using nuclear weapons, but what the world would be like after a nuclear war. And these come in uh, what the war itself would be like. What would the life would be like in the immediate couple of decades when all infrastructure has collapsed? And then their uh, stunning imaginations thousands of years into the future, Canticle for Leibowitz being one of the, probably the single best example of this, that's late 50s, um, where you, you have to – whenever you do these speculative imaginings, and this is where I think much of the linkage between speculative fiction and history come is you have you can only draw on uh what you can imagine and what you can imagine is highly constrained on what you think is possible or plausible so history provides a huge number of amazingly plausible or possible scenarios that you can change and alter and mix in the future so canticle for Leibowitz is strongly patterned around a vision of what the fall of rome must have been like and then transposing that onto a post-nuclear world um, with many changes that result as a consequence, genetic mutations. But the vision that it draws on is what people in the 50s thought the fall of Rome actually worked like. And what, of course, it looks like is the Dark Ages. So the, the first novella are, is a bunch of monks in the American Southwest or the American West who are illuminating engineering manuscripts. Um, right. And it's very explicitly a kind of story about you emerge from the Dark Ages, you begin to build monarchies, more centralized governments, and eventually you reach an industrial state where there's another nuclear war. I hope that doesn't give away anything to anybody who hasn't read the classic novels. But one of the questions I want to ask you about that, since you've read so much of this literature, is a question that actually comes up in my science fiction class, is when I used to teach Leibowitz, which I no longer do, is to what degree the the notion of the post-nuclear environment, the post-apocalyptic environment as a new dark ages, my sense is that that's very common 
in yes. that literature. How common is that? Um, it's uh, extremely common because there are very few novels of the Cold War that imagine limited nuclear war. There are quite a few in the post-Cold uh, War age that imagine limited nuclear war happening in the past, um, as in alternative histories of the Cuban Missile Crisis, etc. But um, the the vision of nuclear war as it's portrayed in uh, the 1950s and 60s was heavily about it being a global thermonuclear war that would absolutely crack civilization. Um, there's on the beach with civilization, just, with humans just dying globally. Um, the only limited war books you, I can think of that are highly prominent are Failsafe and then its contemporary Red Alert, which is the very loose pretext for Dr. Strangelove, both of which imagine a sort of bargaining strategy that turns a global nuclear war into a limited one. Um, but the, the vision that's propagated, and it's part of a deterrent strategy, it's for many other reasons, is that nuclear war must be totalizing. And there's no other way to imagine it than a complete disruption of everything we know. Um, I hope that gets at some of the answer to your question. No, no, it's terrific. Um, So the third way in which what you're talking about starts to get into science fiction, I thought came in nicely with your discussion of shock and awe, which is that right now we're living in a period of uh, significant changes in military capabilities. Uh, I mean, we've been living in a period of significant changes in military capabilities for quite some time. But one of the things that, you know, I have a colleague who writes a great deal about the accuracy revolution, Um, you know, the ability of to... The increasing accuracy of conventional delivery systems such that conventional weapons start to have nuclear-like implications because remember that part of the problem that nuclear weapons solve, as you well know in the 50s and 60s, is that you don't have to hit things that close to do a lot of damage to them. Um, particularly if you think about counterforce capabilities or using nuclear weapons against other nuclear weapons or against conventional capabilities. And so, you know, one of my colleagues says, you know, the accuracy revolution is changing that, that we can now do with conventional weapons what we used to only be able to do with nuclear weapons, and that might have implications for how we think about the relationship between conventional and nuclear weapons. Certainly there are an increasing number of what we call pre-nuclear escalation options, which is ways mm-hmm. of uh, ratcheting up the amount of damage or destruction or the, the types of warfare being used that are below the quote-unquote nuclear threshold. And those someday will include cyber warfare, um, probably. Right now, yeah. they certainly include um, this use of, of precision-guided conventional ordinances. Uh, if the U.S. has its way, it will include what's called uh, conventional prompt global strike, which is the ability to use uh, conventional weapons rapidly with high degrees of accuracy anywhere in the world. And one of the big examples of this, which may never be actually deployed, is conventional Trident, putting conventional warheads on uh, sea-launched ballistic missiles. So we're entering an era in which there's a kind of... Um, you know, there's a kind of science fiction-y component to the capabilities that are opening up. This is often written about in science fiction, particularly the cyber warfare component, and where we're being forced to wonder whether we have to rethink things that we know about deterrence or whether we simply need to apply things that we know about deterrence in an environment in which um, we have new kinds of ways of doing destruction. And it sounds to me like your work has already started to to think about that in terms of the connections you're drawing between shock and all now being, we're doing nuclear stuff, but just not with nuclear weapons. Right. And there's also been a yield transformation that is often not remarked upon. We can make nuclear weapons of extremely small yield, and we have conventional weapons with vastly larger blast mm-hmm. than the nuclear weapons. The primary that would initiate a hydrogen bomb is often much, much smaller in yield than uh, the standard bombs that were dropped on uh, cities during the Gulf War. Uh, so it's not even clear whether by yield or capacity uh, the weapons, even independent of accuracy, whether the weapon, the boundary between the weapons makes as much sense. And some of the things that were are construed in the accuracy revolution as a bug, that is killing lots of people because you can't get at the thing you want to get at, was a feature of nuclear deterrence that was supposed to make war less likely by making it so much more costly on a human scale. And our interpretation of what costs generate deterrence has shifted a lot over time. I mean, what we're talking about in some respects is the convergence of low-yield nuclear weapons with conventional weapons. Uh, Right. 
And that's a really interesting development, and it's one that policymakers are thinking very hard about these days, and in different ways. I mean, one of the things, if you, I'm sure you're familiar, I'm not familiar with the Russian language source material, but if you read the English language, Russian military publications, there's a lot of discussion about how to make sense of this by creating, for example, um, scales of destructiveness measured in economic terms that would put all of these kinds of capabilities essentially on the same continuum. Right? Yes. Um, and some people look at that and say, hmm, this is potentially frightening. <laughs> but other people look at this and say, you know, well, at least the Russians are thinking very seriously about this in a very public way. So, right. And the, the, this goes back to the discussion of what would be special or not. There's some – if um, you pose to somebody, well, we could use this large conventional weapon on this area and – uh, kill a lot of people, or we could use this very small nuclear weapon, uh, which will target exactly what we want, but it fits on the warhead and has the right blast uh, on the missile and has the right blast for us to get there. Would you rather use the much higher collateral damage conventional weapon or the very small nuke? Uh, I think most people would be horrified at the possibility of using a nuke. Um, and I'm not advocating for the use of nuke, but I think that this kind of scrambling of the categories is a place which speculative fiction has done for quite some time, but uh, the military thinking is catching up to it uh, quite rapidly. And for all I know, I don't actually know the interior of this, it has been strongly influenced by that uh, literary production. Hmm. Well, that's a, a you may whole... You than I do. Yeah, well, yeah. So, um, uh, the... Um... So this kind of blurring of the lines between science fiction, science fact, science, uh, allows us to introduce <laughs> another category, uh, pseudoscience, which you have written a really terrific book about, which is the ostensible subject of today's interview. So maybe you could tell us a, a great deal, actually. Give us an introduction. <laughs> what do we need to know about the pseudoscience wars? Okay. So um, the pseudoscience wars, uh, as I see it, has two very large goals. Um one of which is to talk about that category of pseudoscience and what we think it means. Um, a distinctive feature of pseudoscience, it's not the only category that has this, but it shares it with a small set of other categories. Uh, no one thinks they're a pseudoscientist. No one believes that what they're doing is pseudoscientific. Everybody who is labeled a pseudoscientist thinks they're actually prosecuting science in some way or other. And uh, what I want to do in the book is take that uh, thought and see how far we can push it, um, both to understand how communities that are on the fringe of people who are, believe in lots of doctrines that um, are considered grossly erroneous by mainstream science, not just things like parapsychology. The, the big three are parapsychology, cryptozoology, like Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, and stuff like that, or UFOs, which are the, the big three. Um, but lots of other doctrines, including creationism, etc., how these people think of what they're doing as part of the scientific project, because that tells us a lot about what many people think science is, because the fringe community is extremely large. The second thing that we can do by pushing that very hard is figure out why some of these doctrines get labeled pseudoscientific. The only people who really uh, have credibility in bestowing that title are scientists themselves who are mainstream or establishment in some way. But they don't call everything they disagree with pseudoscientific. Um, and some people have said, well, the reason why some things get labeled pseudoscience and other things get labeled just bad science or incorrect science is because there's something qualitatively different about pseudoscience. Um, my view is that the only thing that's qualitatively different about pseudoscience is the fact that scientists have chosen to call these particular doctrines that. So instead of asking what are they calling pseudoscience, we should look more historically at when they're calling certain things pseudoscience. And when you uh, look at things that way, there are certain moments that are sort of pseudoscience hotspots where the term gets thrown out a lot more. And those correlate with moments when particular scientific communities feel themselves under threat or in tremendous anxiety. It's in that way is very much analogous. And this is the other category that I often think about it parallel to heresy. No one thinks they're a heretic. They think that they're following whatever true faith they're following. They're labeled that by um, the orthodoxy, which is uh, worried about this particular heresy uh, destabilizing or harming their 
position, their true belief, the stability of their believers, many other things, and they believe it's fundamentally immoral and wrong. And pseudoscience shares many similar features as a category. So that's thing one the book does. Thing two the book does is try to follow one particular fringe doctrine that was widely labeled pseudoscience um, from, in a sense, birth to death. And this is, these are the catastrophic theories of Emanuel Velikovsky, which I expect most of the listeners of this won't know much about unless they've read a particular rather esoteric subset of books or if they're older than 50. Because most people under 50 that I've walked around talking to, asking them if they've heard of this name, have no idea who this guy is. But if they're under 50, I mean, if, I'm sorry, if they're over 50, there's a reasonable chance that they have a copy of Worlds in Collision in their library somewhere. And if you go into your parents' basement, it's probably sitting there, uh, especially if your parents were in college in the 1970s. Um, so Emanuel Velikovsky published a book in 1950 called Worlds in Collision, which was a runaway bestseller at the time and uh, in 1950, in part because it sparked a movement by scientists uh, who were extremely hostile to it. Uh, both It sparked a, a hostile negative press, which created controversy, which is always good. And there were threats of a boycott of the press by scientists as they thought it was uh, inappropriate for a scientifically inclined press to publish such a thing. And that generated, of course, yet more interest, yet more sales. So there's this big sale period in 1950 where the pseudoscience term gets thrown around quite a lot. And then there's a, a new resurgence starting in the mid to late 60s as the counterculture picks up on Velikovsky's ideas and starts promoting them uh, or considering them an alternative to the science that they're being uh, fed or uh, propagandized. There's lots of language like this used uh, by the establishment scientists at the universities where they're at. So Velikovsky's ideas, which I'll get to in a second, um, fit in very different cultural contexts, but they always manage to tell us quite a lot about how science thinks of itself. Scientists think of what they're doing and how other people think about the scientific project as either being uh, dogmatic or biased or inclusive or, or convergent with other kinds of systems of thought. Mm -hmm. But you should talk a little bit about the substance of worlds uh, in collision because it will start to ring bells with even some of our younger science fiction readers uh, for reasons that I hope we can get into later. Yes. Um, so uh, Velikovsky's central idea uh, was to start looking at he, – he believes he's a historian more than a scientist, or he believed this. Um, I should give you a sense of also – he was born in 1895 and he died in 1979 – born in what was then the Russian Empire and died in Princeton, New Jersey. He has a very long and uh, complicated life. But the argument that he came to in the 1940s is if you read the collective literary heritage of humanity, which are uh, myths, legends, religious documents, and you read them from around the world, uh, China, India, the Mayans, the Norse myths, but mostly focusing on the ancient uh, Eastern Mediterranean Egyptian records, Greek records, Babylonian records, um, and especially the Hebrew Bible, you, you see the same stuff. There's massive flooding, there's rains of fire from the heavens, there are rocks falling from the sky, cracked earth, earthquakes, uh, fire in the heavens, um, etc. It's all the same stuff. Now, there's a couple of ways you can interpret that happening in cultures that are incredibly distant from each other. One is uh, there's some sort of psychological archetype that we all interpret things in, and these are sort of independent collective hallucinations or uh, metaphors that people are imposing. Another is that uh, some cultures had this big flood myth, and then it spreads from there to other places. This is a very common way of understanding Noah's flood now. Um, a third possibility is that perhaps they're not myths, but they're actually things that happened that people saw. And so what these myths are recording are eyewitness testimony of global disaster, of disasters that happened in the past. So that's insight one, taking these mythic records and using them as historical documents. Insight two is, well, since they're all the same stuff, what if it's only one event? That is everybody in the world, all these cultures witnessed the same catastrophe 
and they're recording it in the same way. So instead of saying, well, there are lots of catastrophes that they're recording, saying there's just one event. And since it's one event recorded everywhere in the world, it must have been global in scale. So if you have those assumptions and build them together, then you can read all of the myths and reverse engineer into it what the catastrophe was. And according to Velikovsky, the catastrophe was that at some point before 1500 BC, a comet erupted from the surface of Jupiter floated around in space for a while, but then started hurtling towards Earth around 1500 BC. It, uh, so this comet hurtling towards Earth from Jupiter um, gets trapped uh, in interaction with Earth electrically, electromagnetically, and gravitationally. And the electromagnetic stuff is very important for Velikovsky. And it uh, gets really, really close to the Earth. So there's this looming, massive planet in the heavens, kind of like that scene in... Uh, Transformers 3, where the Cybertron is, like, right overhead. Um, and because it's so close, it ruptures the Earth's crust, it tilts the Earth's axis, and uh, that you can see, for example, in the Ten Plagues, which he interprets as catastrophes of this sort. The parting of the Red Sea is not a miracle, it's just that the Earth's axis, the Earth's axis shifts, so the water by angular momentum moves towards the poles, which drains the basins in the middle of the, of the Earth. Um, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day are both Venus, sorry, are both this comet, and I've given away the end. Uh, eventually, that comet stabilizes and turns into Venus, our nearest planetary neighbor. And then the second half of the book, Venus displaced Mars, which used to be in a different position, and it threatens Earth as well. There's enormous catastrophes. Those correlate with the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and also with the Iliad uh, and Homeric Greece. And so, uh, we have this narrative of the solar system being rearranged uh, in the, the uh, before the eyes of humanity and recorded in the collective literary heritage of humanity. And those um, and those documents tell us the nature of that catastrophe. So the book has tons of quotations from all over the myths. It's a pretty enthralling read, and it's a huge idea that gets people who are interested in religion, people who are interested in mythology, history, and people interested in astronomy, which is always a popular topic, in the same conversation. Velikovsky also cribbed from 19th century and 18th century precursors. A lot of these ideas have been floating around. Von Däniken uh, was an innkeeper in Switzerland um, and, uh, for various reasons, stumbled into writing this book. The history of this has not been well written and uh, is awaiting its historian. Um, but the, that book takes off in different ways. So it's not so much... Those ideas have been around for a while. It's just that there's moments of resonance when the right book hits at the right time and um, seems to light everyone on fire. That book sells in the millions. So Velikovsky, though, is, is particularly important for your story and for your larger point about uh, the relationship between pseudoscience and science because uh, Velikovsky gets a kind of scientific attention and scientific debate that some of these other great works of what we might think of as being ultimately speculative fiction, uh, although they didn't, the authors certainly didn't see them that way, don't get this kind of it's, controversy. Is that well, right? I think it's actually history, but on the, on the inside of the cover, it says it's a work of fiction mm -hmm. because it doesn't want to be sued. But anyway, go on. Well, I'm sorry, but I mean, the point is that that there's a reason why you do Velikovsky and not not Donikin for or Donikin, for example, and and that has to do with a particular controversy and scientific controversy surrounding uh, worlds in collision. Yes, though so th th there there's a degree of attention that's uh, gained to Velikovsky, and that's what happens in that lull between the 1950 and the late 60s. Um, in that period of time, the sort of the sabers and uh, artillery of the pseudoscience wars are kind of put away for a bit. And the scientists seem to generally think Velikovsky has had his flash in the pan and is going away. But in Worlds in Collision, there are uh, predictions, or at least not predictions, let's call them claims about the nature of the solar system that must be true if Velikovsky's picture is right. So, um, for example, he argues that because Venus used to be a comet in relatively recent history and erupted from Jupiter, it must still be hot because it was incandescently glowing when it hurtled through space. 
And so he makes a claim in 1950 that Venus should be very warm. Uh, there is an argument at the time period that Venus is actually warm, but the consensus view is that Venus is a cold planet, much like the moon and Mars. And then there are spectroscopic measurements of Venus, and Venus turns out to be very warm. Now, the way we understand that now is that it's a runaway greenhouse effect on Jupiter, which is one of the things Carl Sagan worked on. He was a specialist on planetary atmospheres, and that's part of the reason he gets roped into the Velikovsky debates, often by his own actions, in the 1970s. Um, So there's predictions about uh, the nature of radio waves coming from uh, Jupiter. They're all qualitative predictions, but they're actual claims. Uh, what the temperature of Venus should be and what the composition of the atmosphere of Venus should be. Um, that is, it should be full of, uh, hydrocarb- of hydrocarbons because it was it dumped oil on the Earth's surface. That's where the Earth's oil comes from, according to Velikovsky. And it's why things ignited on fire. Um, so as space probes start going out and exploring Venus and Mars in precisely this period, the Mariner mission to Venus is in this period. And the Soviets send the Venera probes in the late 60s, early 70s to the surface of Venus. Velikovsky gets injected by various people who have read the book and are excited by it, who interpret the findings coming from NASA and from the Soviets as confirming this hypothesis. So the counterculture doesn't just pick up on Velikovsky because it irritates um, the establishment scientists and their parents' generation, although that's part of it. It's also because they think that Velikovsky was onto something, that he uh, has made claims that are confirmed. And that gives the Velikovsky argument legs that von Denikin doesn't have, even though von Denikin is much better suited to filmic adaptation, which is part of the reason he's well known today. Because right, so much of uh, science fiction and uh, even what we think of as more traditional fantasy is, in fact, um, derivative of von Daniken, or at least derivative of his source material. <laughs> Prometheus being only the most recent uh, version. Exactly. Um, but let's go back to – but let's let's not get caught up in that yet. Um, so Velikovsky, uh, you know, one of the things that you point out in the book is that – and part of the reason why this gets us into this complicated relationship between science and pseudoscience is that these apparent – these claims about if my theory is true, we should see X, and then apparent confirmation that we do in fact see X has uh, has a lot in common with the process by which relativity gets established. Yes, and that's not an accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, so relativity, general relativity, the theory of gravity, mm-hmm. makes extremely radical predictions about the nature of light and uh, interstellar events. And those are confirmed suddenly and very um, massively in 1919 by Arthur Eddington's uh, Eclipse Expedition, which catapults Einstein into international fame. That's what makes him famous. Um, Velikovsky moved from New York City, which is where he had emigrated from Palestine um, in uh, the in the early in the late 1930s. He moves to New York. And then he moves to Princeton in 1952 on the strength of the earnings uh, of Worlds in Collision and lives here until his death. Uh, that's where I am right now. I actually live right across the street from where he used to live. Um, uh, he um, he met the most famous resident of Princeton, uh, partially by accident, Albert Einstein, who used to like rowing on the lake, which is not far away from Velikovsky's house. Um, and... Einstein had met Velikovsky in the 1920s in Berlin, but had forgotten that moment. And they have a hostile relationship at first, at least hostile on Einstein's part. But over time, Einstein comes to entertain Velikovsky, and Velikovsky comes over to his house about every month or so. And they have very long discussions that go on for several hours and a correspondence that goes on from 1952 to is when the letters start. But 1954 and 55 they see each other a lot. And in 55, uh, Einstein passes away. Now, you, the way you describe it, Einstein views uh, Velikovsky as uh, a entertaining and congenial crank. Um, but um, Velikovsky yeah. believes that he is being his views are being affirmed by being taken so seriously in at least the way he sees it uh, by, you know, the most famous physicist uh, of the last century, uh, if not all time. Yeah, he um, – that's that's exactly right. Einstein uh, has a complicated view of Velikovsky. He um, 
doesn't agree with the theories by all the evidence we've seen. And I've gone through and looked at how Einstein talked about Velikovsky to other people, because the way Velikovskians recount this story, they use Velikovsky's own testimony of it um, heavily and trying to get a better picture of what Einstein actually thought. Einstein was a very changeable, mercurial person, very hard to uh, pin down. But Einstein also felt that the way the scientists had reacted to Velikovsky in 1950 was inappropriate and wrong. And since he himself had been the target of ad hominem attacks uh, in the 1920s in Germany by the so-called anti-Einstein League, he was sympathetic to the notion of a persecuted scholar who is vilified for their views. So that his views towards Velikovsky are highly complicated. But Velikovsky thinks that Einstein is being slowly won over. Uh, Einstein read uh, Velikovsky's geology book called Earth and Upheaval, which comes out in 55. He'd read part of that in manuscript and written comments on it. Uh, he'd read Worlds in Collision a couple of times, and they had long discussions about it. And the way this would usually go is they would have long discussions, and every so often Einstein would burst out and yell at Velikovsky. And then he would calm down. And Velikovsky has no way of accounting for these outbursts, but um, I see them as eruptions of frustration that appear uh, every so often in his interactions with this uh, genial person that he calls uh, in German verrückt, meaning crazy, uh, repeatedly. That's the term he usually associates with Velikovsky. Well, one thing that also comes across in your uh, discussion of Velikovsky is that this is one dogged individual. And if you've ever argued with a dogged individual who is very smart and very wrong, uh, I think one can be sympathetic to Einstein occasionally uh, erupting in frustration. Yes, uh, absolutely. And this gets back to what started me on this path. Um, Velikovsky said, look, I want my views to be confirmed. What should I do? And Einstein said, the way science works, and this is Einstein's view of how science works, is you need to make bold predictions. And if those are confirmed, then your theory will be confirmed. And so Velikovsky goes back to Worlds in Collision and finds these claims he makes about Venus and recasts them and repopularizes them as predictions. Uh, because Einstein informed him that that's, in fact, how theories tend to propagate, especially radical new ones. And so Einstein's actually intimately involved in the transformation, uh, Velikovsky's self-transformation into someone who is a um, accurate predictor of new cosmological discoveries. And the fact that the space age is happening simultaneously means that confirmations could happen. And to some extent, some people believe they do. So one thing I should mention uh, is that you're going to be doing another New Books Network podcast on a channel specifically on science, technology, and society. So I'm going to push us back very firmly in the direction of this as a speculative fiction and fantasy podcast uh, and get you to talk a little bit about the moments you describe in the book in which uh, in the – I think in the early 70s, maybe late 60s, that Velikovsky intersects directly with the science fiction community. Yes, um, that's, uh, there's a lot, a lot of these intersections. I was actually somewhat surprised by how many there were at first, and then it made sense for a reason uh, I'll talk about in a minute. There, there was some interaction with um, earlier, uh, uh, earlier science fiction writers in the 50, 1950 moment, like El Sprague de Camp writes a uh, an attack on worlds in collision. There's a couple of people who voice it. The grand uh, figure of American science fiction in this period, uh, Isaac Asimov, is silent. Uh, until the 60s, when in his book on uh, the Bible, mentions Velikovsky's theories and argues against it, which then generates a flood of mail. And then in the 60s, the, science fi the speculative fiction, science fiction community, um, and they think of themselves as science fiction writers, uh, feel like they have to engage with Velikovsky. And the big figures in this regard are Asimov and Ben Bova, more than anybody else. Asimov as uh, a figure who constantly gets written by Velikovskians to ask for his views on Velikovsky's theories, or by people who are Asimov fans who just want to know what he thinks of Worlds in Collision, which he hates. Um, and he hates Worlds in Collision for many of the scientizing reasons that are associated with Asimov. He's all, he was also very good friends with Carl Sagan, who became in the 1970s the figurehead of the anti-Velikovsky scientists group. 
Um, and so he writes quite a bit about uh, Velikovsky and why Velikovsky is, as he calls it, he doesn't want to call him a crackpot. So instead he calls him a CP, which he thinks is less derogatory than crackpot uh, for reasons that are vague. And then writes a series of other articles where he's trying to argue for why what uh, Velikovsky is doing is not science. Bova is a more complicated case because Bova uh, doesn't like Velikovsky, but in analog science fiction, science fact, the great uh, journal of this period, he um, feels like he has to address it because a lot of his readers are interested in it. And so uh, he tries on several occasions to get Velikovsky to write for the periodical. And Velikovsky won't do it if he, at this point, Velikovsky is, can d- dictate his own terms. He won't do it unless there are no critics involved and he gets to prove, uh, approve everything in advance, etc. And Bova box on this, but he spends about two years negotiating it. Um, and uh, in the end, uh, various uh, Velikovsky uh, uh, acolytes, supporters write in, and Asimov writes his CP piece for Bova. Um, at first, this surprised me that there was so much engagement with this. It makes sense to me why science fiction writers engaged with von Denikin much more. But then I thought back on another episode of fringe scientific debate that I looked at in the 19th century, which is spiritualism, uh, seances, table wrapping, automatic writing, levitation, communication with ghosts, that sort of thing. And uh, there are many scientists in that period, 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, who are interested in this phenomenon because it looks like it might be a new empirical phenomenon that they could try and investigate whether psychologically for a minority or physically, like maybe something's going on with ether matter interaction. And the people who are the biggest debunkers of this uh, movement are some extent scientists, but way more so magicians uh, who mobilize Houdini being uh, the most visible of these mobilize and find ways in which the mediums who are proposing these phenomena are in fact charlatans, liars, uh, tricksters, and they use magic techniques that would generate similar effects to show how the effects could be generated entirely surreptitiously. And it seems to me that this particular vanguard of science fiction writers, this particular establishment in the 70s, are doing something similar, where they see Velikovsky as uh, not the science they admire and not the fiction that they're writing, but something troubling and that's in between. And from both sides, Velikovsky gets a lot of pushback. Uh, and the science fiction writers being writers, and therefore more articulate, more colorful, uh, form a very important plank in the attacking of Velikovsky in the 1970s, because they have the same audience. The same paperback books circulate among the same set of people. Well, you know, what's particularly interesting here, and you've already really done all the intellectual legwork for this and what you've just said, is that a lot of the book is concerned with the boundary between science and pseudoscience, right? And what what philosophers of science call the demarcation problem. How do we know real science from fake science or stuff that's not even science at all? And so that boundary is very important for scientists. Uh, but it also becomes clear that the boundary between pseudoscience and science fiction is very important for authors of science fiction. And that is a more complicated uh, – that presents a more complicated problem or puzzle to some degree uh, because if you think about uh, – you, you, you talked about sort of the most famous examples of pseudoscience way back at the beginning. And you, you said parapsychology – cryptozoology, and UFOs, all of which are staples of science fiction. Absolutely. And if you are a hard sci-fi writer, Mm -hmm. uh, this boundary is extremely important to police. Except for if you're a hard science fiction writer, and I want you to expand on that in the last few minutes we have, but if you're a science fiction writer in the 50s or the 60s, parapsychology in the form of, say, telepathy or telekinesis was actually a staple of what you were writing about, right? So in a sense... you know, the boundaries of what constitutes science are also shifting over the, the, the life course of some of these same people, right? You know, telepathy is in Asimov. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, that, that's not inconsistent because in that time period, mm-hmm. there was some scientific debate about the status of telepathy mm-hmm. and about whether it might in fact exist. There's still a debate about it. it gets, it's always controversial, but there is some discussion about it in the 1940s, 1950s. And so 
you one of the ways you can track uh, hard, hard science fiction is a good way of tracking uh, what theories count and what theories don't count as accepted or plausible at the time. Levitation, for example, is not something I believe Asimov writes about as plausible, but I could be wrong. So you were about to say when I so rudely interrupted you to push this point harder that there's a lot at stake for science fiction authors and particularly hard people who now would self-identify or may have self-identified when this term became prevalent as hard science fiction writers and also policing the boundary. And so I, I was, maybe we can close out with you elaborating a bit on that uh, notion. Um, so a part of it has to do with, uh, I mean, very basic marketing things that these people are occupying some of your readers' eyeballs at a time when you want them to be occupied by you. Uh, but I don't think it's just a uh, mercenary commercial balance and interest that's doing that. Um, I think uh, what's at stake is something much uh, more complicated in that a certain segment of the science fiction community see themselves as allied with the sciences, that they help push science in certain directions. Uh, the famous example of Arthur C. Clarke and telecommunication satellites is one of these, but that they, by being hard science fiction writers, push the limits of what's possible. They imagine ways in which our current science could be expanded and built upon and thereby either inspire scientists to explore certain topics, um, space colonies being one of these things that was inspired and uh, by science fiction and then became an active topic of discussion in the 70s and 80s. Um, or that they uh, – so they either inspire people to work on certain topics or they uh, raise public awareness of what science is actually doing, what amazing things science is accomplishing. And the people that are labeled pseudoscientists, these fringe communities who think that they're producing science but not in a way that um, scientists or these science fiction writers think is plausible, those people threaten that project very deeply because they can so easily be confused with – uh, science fiction. One of the first referee reports for Velikovsky in 1950, uh, so it's refereed by the press and passes, um, says, this thing is not science. It's also not science fiction. I think it's fictional science, which is not a disparaging term, he says. Hmm. And the notion of fictional science and its blurry boundary with science fiction, I think, is what's at stake for these writers. But I also wonder if – because a bunch of the, the, the height of this controversy – and it's being driven, as you say, by the resurrection of Velikovsky, the by the counterculture and the great interest in him. But this also comes at a time in which new wave science fiction, the notion of speculative fiction – uh, sociological science fiction is challenging the boundaries of science fiction itself. Yes. Um, did you – was there any evidence of a connection there that part of the policing – uh, that hard science fiction writers are engaged with is also directed to some degree at the challenge to the boundaries of science fiction by so-called soft or, or sociological science fiction authors. Uh, it's a very interesting idea. I think it's almost certainly true. I didn't see that because I was looking at the materials I had were Velikovsky's personal papers. Mm -hmm. And his point of view, he doesn't see that side of things. Of course, because he's a scientist. <laughs> or a historian, a psychologist. He's the science fiction writers butting against him. He doesn't see who the science fiction writers are butting against on the other side. Mm -hmm. But um, I expect if you started looking into Bova's position and what Analog is doing in the 1970s, you would absolutely find that, uh, that balance on the other side. Well, I know that you are basically out of time, uh, so it's not the most uh, smooth way to end this interview, but uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on. And uh, World's Inclusion is a truly terrific book. I really enjoyed it. Not only that, my wife really enjoyed it. Uh, and everybody I know who's read it, whether they are an academic or not, has, has uh, really thought it was fascinating. It also, beyond just having... Uh, topics and issues and characters and individuals uh, who are um, of interest to uh, the kind of people who might be listening to a science fiction podcast. It's also uh, just a terrific, plain English explanation of some very difficult concepts in the philosophy of science. So I think there's just a lot there. 
And uh, not only that, but also some of uh, your other work that you've talked about. So I hope people uh, go out and read it and that it helps uh, shape their thinking about a variety of issues, uh, including science fiction, but also philosophy of science and history of science. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me here. Uh, and I hope we can uh, do this again in some way, shape, or form sometime. hope I write something worth it. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy was recorded on November 30th, 2012, and featured Michael Gordon. 